Hello everyone. Not too long ago I wrote a blog about the drug diversion triad. My guest today is the author of that triad. Many of you probably know her, Maureen Berger, the Chief Nursing Officer for Visant. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks, Terry. Really happy to be here with you today. I want you to tell us about that drug diversion triad, but before you do, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work experience. Thanks, Terry. Sure. Um, I will say this. I am proud to say I've been a nurse for 45 years this year, which feels like it's just slipped by so quickly. But it's been a wonderful career and I've had a lot of terrific opportunities. Uh, my clinical background was mostly in critical care, but I did a lot of time in administrative positions, both in nursing and in nurse in uh, hospital administration. Yeah. But some of those positions have really helped to inform my current practice in diversion work because one time I was I had the privilege of being a perioperative director. Um, other times as being a nurse manager and supervising staff who were both at risk and had diversion events. And then finally spending time as the vice president over compliance and safety and risk and infection control for a major academic medical center really helped me to look at the great big picture of how diversion really truly at its heart is an issue of patient safety. So here we are during patient safety week and I think it's a great thing for us to be talking about diversion. Very cool. Yeah. So you've got you've got the boots on the ground, look at it, and then all the way up to being responsible for really protecting the hospital, your patients and the staff and looking at it from that compliance and risk. Yeah. So you yeah, you've got a, a breadth of, of uh, view of the whole thing. All right. Well, let's talk about that drug diversion triad. I want to go kind of piece by piece of that. Let me add it here so people can see that up on the screen. Uh, so let's let's just go with each one. Under the pressure and motivation section, you have external and internal pressures listed. One of those internal pressures is drug dependency, but also listed is distress and pain. Most of the time, I would think about somebody diverting only if their need for the med was so great that they couldn't risk uh, or they couldn't resist but you separate out distress and pain. So maybe you have a different view of that. Uh, give me some background on that as to, you know, diversion before you have a dependency potentially. Absolutely. So um, as many of your listeners are probably familiar, it's not unusual for healthcare workers, let's say to either have a healthcare problem that they have treated. Um, they may have to have surgery. They may require a controlled substance to help with pain management, so legitimately prescribed, but unfortunately they may be sensitive to that medication and develop a substance use disorder themselves. So that's where drug dependency comes in. You can have a person who becomes dependent on drugs, not through diversion, but through legitimate use of controlled substances. On that same token, you can have an individual who may have had surgery and has been released back to work and had received um, uh, controlled substances to manage their pain. Their pain may still be present though, even though they don't have a problem per se with substance abuse, but they still have an unresolved pain or distress. And so they are, um, when presented with an opportunity, they may choose to divert to help take care of that pain or emotional distress that they're experiencing. 
as you know, unfortunately, that some of these drugs, while we start taking them for a very innocent reason, and we think that we can control them, especially because we're healthcare providers and we know better. Um, substance use disorder can develop over time, and then it becomes an issue of drug dependency. So drug dependency can develop both outside of the, let's say, the healthcare environment, but it can also develop as a sequelae of drug diversion for, let's say, casual use. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess really if you think about it, Diversion is diversion no matter what med it is, right? And how many people have dipped into the Tylenol or the ibuprofen pocket and uh, taken something? So I guess it's kind of the same thing. I've got back pain. I've got a prescription. I didn't bring my stuff with me. I need one. But then it becomes a little bit more serious when it's a controlled substance that they're dipping into. But diversion is diversion, right? Even if it's other pain meds. I mean, at its heart, diversion is a form of theft or a form of fraud. And and really, I'm going to back up just a quick second, just because the drug diversion triad, we developed that um, as a way to help, I call it sense-making, but really thinking about how do we view what's happening in hospitals today and healthcare organizations when an individual chooses to divert a controlled substance. So... Back, gosh, in the, you know, a long time ago, uh, Cressy developed what was called the fraud triangle. And in the fraud triangle, what's interesting about this is, is that all three factors have to be in play in order for fraud to occur. And I think it's also important for us to look at diversion that way as well, where, you know, there may be internal pressure or external pressure or motivation And then the individual may have some other feelings. I call it the heart and the head, actually. They have things in their heart and things in their head that make them susceptible that when an opportunity presents, they're going to take that opportunity. But all three things have to be there. People, uh, you know, 80% of people, when faced with an opportunity, do not commit fraud. It's only that small percent that when everything else comes together are going to. And likewise, there's 10% of people that are going to commit fraud no matter what you do. So when we look at those things having to do with fraud and apply that then to drug diversion, we're really looking at there's three factors and one of which is the most easy for us to um, control and mitigate. And the other two are much more difficult because it's not always easy to know what's in the hearts and the heads of our staff. Sure. Sure. Okay. So the pressure and motivation would fall under the category that we can't really control for them. Would you agree? I would say yes. I would say that because we don't always know what's going on either at home or in their background. And and in some ways, as an employer, we're prevented from knowing that. There's only so many things we're allowed to know about their personal lives and their personal medical history. So, you know, even when... um, Even when we've had people who have um, um, come back from surgery, we've always thought, boy, it would be nice if we knew who Mm -hmm. had been prescribed a controlled substance. But you know what? There's a firewall there, and for good reason. You know, we shouldn't be um, anticipating or looking at people because they had a drug in their past. So we don't always know. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. The second portion of the triad, the rationalization and justification. 
the job owes me, no one will miss it, I didn't sign up for this. I think it's pretty easy for people to rationalize stealing from your employer. I mean, I think we, many people tend to think that they're entitled, that they work really hard and they deserve a little extra since, I mean, after all, I am underpaid and underappreciated, right? Or how many times do you clock out for lunch and you barely step away and somebody in the hallway, a family, somebody asks you a question and you're technically clocked out, but you stop and you help and you just lost 10 minutes off of your lunch break. I mean, it's pretty easy to justify, well, okay, you owe me a little bit back. Would you agree? I would. I think healthcare in particular um, creates a lot of... of um a pressure, I would just say the situation that we face in healthcare creates a lot of negative emotions for people. Um, it creates sometimes that feeling, like you say, of entitlement or um, especially during the time of COVID, when we look at the stress that's been placed on our healthcare workers and the ANA has done a great job of doing sort of pulse surveys of the ANA membership to see how they're feeling about their jobs. And the amount of people who um, are unhappy with their positions, want to leave their jobs, are angry and upset with the way that things have been handled, um, all of that stuff plays in. I would, I would hazard a guess to say that there is probably, you know, because we can't measure it, but there's likely an increase in drug diversion happening in our hospitals right now. And we can talk a little bit about that later, about what are some of the um, examples of that that we're seeing. But when it comes to rationalization and justification, there is that piece that just says, you know, uh, I, I, the job owes this to me. And so it's okay. And, you know, if nobody's looking, nobody's going to miss it anyway. And we do find that, you know, unfortunately, people aren't always looking. And so it goes undetected for quite some time. Hmm. So one thing I do posit about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, is, you know, healthcare organizations do a great job of doing sort of employee engagement surveys. It would be so interesting if there was a way to follow organizations and look at their employee engagement scores at the level of units and then look at what kinds of patterns of diversion they may be detecting. Mm -hmm. Because it may be that there's a proxy within our own, you know, systems of data collection that may help us say, you know, we really should also be thinking about, you know, let's, let's be careful with these areas that are very unhappy, because we could also be set up then for additional diversion occurring in those areas. Yeah, I, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, if you take care of your employees, essentially, are they happier in general? more devoted in terms of the rationalization and justification that those types of things wouldn't enter their mind as you know you owe me or it doesn't matter and then the happier in general in terms of the pressure and motivation or if they have the resources to seek the help then they can get the help in other ways um, and kind of catch some things maybe before they happen or uh get to them sooner if they would feel comfortable. So that's interesting. I mean, um, yeah, it's an interesting thought because I've also spoken with people that felt that they were pretty close to their employees that ended up being those with a substance abuse problem and 
they clearly couldn't help them. The employee didn't let them in and right. let them help them. Right. So that would be an interesting study to, to follow over time. And you also, I guess you would have to be pretty sure. I mean, we only know what we know. So we only know about those diverting if we happen to find them. But just because you're seeing less diversion doesn't mean that it's not there. You might be just not finding it. So there would be a lot of things that would go into that to make sure you ruled out and had solid data on that. But it would be interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. But, it, you know, I, I, you're always trying to figure out a way to detect the unknowable or to know the unknowable. And, mm -hmm. you know, proxy measures are sometimes all that we're left to have um, because otherwise it's just, you know, it's very difficult, like I say, to get at the heart of our employees yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That third side then is opportunity. Do you, in your experience, have you seen where maybe opportunity was the very first step that presented itself? I mean, if I, if I don't have a substance abuse problem, but let's say I struggle with insomnia and one day the opportunity presents itself that I can take a sleep aid, a benzodiazepine or something. I don't need it right now, but oh boy, that sure would be nice for one of these nights when I'm really struggling. And the opportunity just presents itself and I take it. So it's a good question. It's a good example of trying out the triad here. So in that example, I would say that there's already... Um, some pressure or motivation that exists because okay. that person is saying that, you know, like, like you say, I have trouble sleeping at night. This might be helpful. Um, and there is likely some rationalization because they have to think that no one's going to sure. notice it being missing as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So opportunity then you have, you have two places already that two factors that are already in place. So when opportunity presents itself, the third piece of the picture is in place. And so it is entirely possible that that person is going to take, you know, that uh, they'll pull two tabs of Oxy and take one for themselves, let's say. Okay. Um, and that's where, but access and opportunity. Um, and for those, for those of us who have worked with us before, we know like we, we kind of said access plus opportunity equals drug diversion, because those are the two things really that we can are most controllable by us. So, when we think about access, we think about, you know, how do we do access control for controlled substances? What are the processes for how we give people access and then monitor their access as they've stayed in an organization and their roles have changed over time and their places and positions have changed? Do we keep up with what their access is? When someone leaves the organization, do we restrict their, their access? Um, very often we find that leave of absence is not considered a change in status. And HR is seems to be loath to want to, you know, connect to Active Directory and change them and limit their access to Pixis or OmniCell or whatever while they're on LOA. Yet we know as diversion folks that LOA, people come in on LOA all the time and remove control substances from their automatic dispensing machines. And it's very difficult sometimes to get people to see that that's a point that we really can control and we need to shut it down. 
we need to have the ability to have very timely, like all of our processes should be fully automated and don't require a human. We have tables for our roles and responsibilities and what our permissions are. And that should be running in the background beautifully so that really all you have to do maybe is once a year audit that to make sure your process is still working as you've, as you've set it up to. But when you think of all the other ways that opportunity presents, so do you have good, strong internal controls within your pharmacy department to start with? So those are those internal operating um, standards of uh, procedures that should be in place in every pharmacy department. And if they're not in place, create a loophole. And we've worked with clients that unfortunately did not have strong structure around whether it was auditing whether it was just doing inventory at the end of the day in a retail pharmacy or any matter of things, and then realize after time that they've been, there's been theft occurring continuously because people took advantage of a weakness in your system. Right. No different than, than outside the pharmacy. We've got to have controls in place to be able to monitor not just chain of custody and transactions, but really understanding human behavior and how our staff interact with controlled substances. Right. Absolutely all true. Yeah, I like to always emphasize it's not just about diversion monitoring, it's diversion prevention and monitoring. Yes. You've got to take those easy opportunities away and then monitor for how they're finding their way around your system that you think is is pretty solid. You mentioned several of the different types of gaps, but have you seen in your experience some really common, what, what are some of the biggest, most common gaps that you see in facilities, common areas for people to take advantage of? I think that there's a disconnect sometimes. I, I'm thinking about this one because it, it just came up and I was like, I, I was stunned when I saw this and I thought, they're, they're not understanding. So in this case, um, we have people who, you know, we have beautiful um, uh, order sets that are written in our electronic medical records now. And in this case, it was a recovery room order set. And instead of having orders for the prescriber that would, one would be opiate tolerant and one would be opiate naive, in order to make it easier for the prescriber, they had one order. And the maximum order for fentanyl in the recovery room was for 250 micrograms. Wow. So, so you, you have the same oh, response wow. that I in just had. In the recovery had. room. In the recovery room. <laughs> because typically, and, and I know this, you know, as a clinician and as a diversion expert, but I know this because we know that, you know, you're going to have first line drug, second line drug, you're going to give X number of doses, and then you move to your next one. But never, ever are you going to find a cap of 250. Yeah. But that was done because of those rare instances when you have an extremely opiate tolerant patient. We get that. But then the question becomes, well, I could easily continue to say that I'm medicating my patient and all the rest of that could be me. And then on top of it, if they're if they're stocking the 250 microgram vial, it's pretty easy then, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Because no matter no matter what, you're going to pull it out and then have that waste whether you used it or not. Yes. And no different than in another circumstance, um, they're 
the um, build. So we know that there's a lot of kludgy thing that hap- happens between your ADMs and your electronic medical records and trying to get things lined up. And in this organization, they they had a goal of trying to manage um, dose range orders. And there's nothing wrong with a dose range order, but you have to understand what the limitations are. And in this case, they had it set up so that when you would go to the ADM, let's say that you had a dose range order of two to four, and they didn't have the orders mapped to a product form. So when you went to the ADM, the nurse might select, I'm going to give the two, but then they were presented with a screen that said, do you want the two, the four, or the ten? Yeah. And I, and I, I looked at that and I said, I'm not sure what you're trying to accomplish, but I can tell you what this will accomplish. Right. It's right. creating an, an inordinate amount of waste that yes. is unnecessary yes. and an opportunity for someone to divert. Yes. So I, that's one of the things that I, I think are, as the audience should be thinking about is how do we connect the dots then between what's happening on the prescribing side, on the build side for our EMRs, and then what is the, what is the end user interface looking like? Right. And what kind of thing are we creating for the end user that we, it's, it's an unintended consequence, yeah. but how do we begin to really sort of build situational awareness about diversion into some of these other committees that have a direct impact on access and opportunity? Absolutely. And then when we are performing an audit and we see something where the nurse has removed more than they should have a higher strength, we need to question, wait a minute, did they have that choice and make that choice? Or was that an EMR type of an order thing and they had no choice? Right. Right. How you respond to that is different, right? Right. It's like, oh, lock that down. And I think, too, what has happened just recently, an audit that I was performing, it was a matter of shortages, drug shortages. Mm -hmm. So then you change... And you add, you load a higher strength because that's all you have. But you got to remember to go back, and it takes a lot more time. It, it's a lot more work to really um, consider diversion with all of the shortages and to minimize that because you're constantly changing out to make sure that the smallest is available rather than just, oh, whatever, let's just load the higher. And um, so it, it's a lot of work to, I, I can remember one place once, I'm like, well, you need to go. And I'm like, that's that take, I'm like, yeah, go do it. You know, you've, you've got it. You got to change these pockets. You got to rearrange, you, you know, you have to. It's true. It does create, and it puts a lot of burden on mm-hmm. your pharmacy IT staff when they're maintaining their drug yes. formularies, when you've got, disruptions in your products and in the supply chain and switching things around and you're looking for that sweet spot but creating an opportunity and then not even thinking about how do we even monitor this to make sure that it's a problem that's where we've got to I think there's an opportunity all of us think we know but we still don't always you know run it through our head to think okay what other like I say, unintended consequences could potentially right. be occurring here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned the how it looks differently with COVID and some diversion. Do you have some examples or? Well, you know, I think, you know, what COVID has done is it really, you know, it 
dramatically increase the number of patients in our ICUs and on ventilators, right? So we needed to have a lot of sedation on board and the use of fentanyl infusions just went through the roof. And we've got a lot of different ways that we prepare and administer fentanyl infusions. So it could be in a syringe pump on a PCA pump. It could be from a bag. It could be in a lockbox. You know, I've, I've been places where supply chain decided that all the nurses needed was infusion tubing with three ports on it. And they were running fentanyl infusions with tubing that had a port between the bag and the pump. So when we're looking at, you know, we're seeing a lot more div diversion of infusions. And infusions are tough because your dose reconciliation reports aren't going to help you because I'll tell you that it was hung. So at least the chain of custody from removal to administration is done. But once that happens, we really have to look at how many barriers can we put in place to make it not easy to divert? Yeah. And how do we um, really structure then when bags are changed, how they're changed, what we're doing with the waste. Um, one thing I heard, which I thought was, it might it might not be a bad recommendation, but in this organization, they decided to put all fentanyl on syringe pumps, on a, on a, a PCA pump. And every time they change the syringe, they also change the tubing at the same time. So it standardizes and normalizes your waste amount. There's never any question of how much was in the tubing. That's what I was going to say. Even if you take the time to do the math, you're like, oh, well, could that be in the tubing? I guess so. <laughs> right. Right. Because yeah. if you're doing it and if, you know, at least with the syringe pumps, it's a microbore tubing. But if you're running this on a regular infusion, on a regular IV pump, mm -hmm. you've got a lot. You could have up to 20 mLs in the tubing. Mm -hmm. And you don't know when you're doing an audit necessarily when the tubing was changed. So in this case, they really kind of restricted all the variables that come into auditing their use of fentanyl by changing that practice. Now, someone could say, well, that cost us more by, because we're using more tubing. True. But on the other hand, they have much greater control over sure. what's happening with their fentanyl. Sure. So we are seeing a lot. And, and some of these were huge volume bags. If you're on ECMO, uh, not uncommon that you might have a liter bag of ketamine. Wow. Because they're going through it so quickly. Yeah. It, the Drugs are metabolized different when you're on ECMO. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of new risks that were introduced by COVID. And then now today when we have, you know, our latest surges kind of settled down and everybody's taking a, a deep breath and taking a look at what happened. But in some cases, when you were short of staff and you brought in, like say, non-ICU staff into your ICU, they became the buddies. And in some cases, the buddies were now pulling the fentanyls or pulling the drugs and then handing them off to other people. Um, if you had um, dual signatures required, the dual signatures were difficult to do because if you were in isolation, nobody was coming in. So there, we created a lot of maybe noise in our systems that makes yeah. it difficult to monitor for yeah. diversion, right? Just a lot more of the necessity of the yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah, a lot more delays, a lot more handoffs, a lot more you know things hanging in the hallway instead of in the room that the, mm -hmm. you know can be accessed. Yeah, a lot more plus different staff. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, so if you see a delay in something, it's like, well, nobody could help me. I was in an I was in an isolation room. I mean, that's the you know the excuse that may be legitimate, maybe not, but certainly it does. It 
creates a lot of noise. Like right, you said. and a lot more temporary staff. So yes. even when it comes to, um, I was uh, helping an organization with doing some audits and just looking at when they were wasting the waste reason that was being selected. And we were seeing um, uh, bag removed, no administration being chosen, even though it wasn't a full bag waste or was it a full bag waste? We couldn't tell. So we had to go back and realize that, well, look, we've never seen these, these people's names even before. They're brand new here. Let's go back and make sure then that we understand the right choices to make at what time and what the expectations are for wasting. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it learning curve? Is it something else? And then on top of everything, the people who are supposed to be monitoring might not be monitoring because they have other, they've been pulled to other duties that, that need to be done in this time of emergency and need. Right. It's so exactly less, right. less oversight. Yeah. All right. Before we wrap it up, do you have any advice for those in the drug diversion prevention and monitoring space outside of kind of what we've talked about? Um, I think it's probably something that you probably tell the people all the time too, but if you're not finding it, then you're not looking hard enough. And um, I am seeing, unfortunately, that, you know, that we have great new surveillance analytics that are coming out, but some of it requires tending. And now the attention is to tending the analytics versus actually using the data out of the analytics and investigating. So I'm seeing people's time, the time is being diverted instead of drugs and uh, they're, they're not getting the full benefit from their analytics. So when people buy analytics or switch over to a new system, they really need to understand that there are still resources that are required in order to get the full benefit from their surveillance analytics. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't buy it and think that it's just going to run in the background and tell you everything you need to know. There is a lot of work still involved. Absolutely. You are so correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Maureen, for your time today. It's been a pleasure, Terry. Thank you so much yes, for inviting me. Yes, for sure.